And this is the place where most of the invasions occur throughout time. That's where um, Genghis Khan and all of the other Khans to come after him are going to come through. That's where the Persians come through. Afghanistan is cake. It is cake to invade. It's easy to get into the country, but it's hard to get resupplied for goods because you're landlocked and it's hard to hold because you can't unify these people who the only way to unify them is by your presence as an enemy. Think about that for a second. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Well, this week has been a tough one for veterans, for concerned citizens for the people of Afghanistan, for people all around the world to watch Afghanistan fall after so much effort. And it's not just effort from the United States. It's not, you know, even just our allies. Like there was a very concerted effort within Afghanistan itself to kind of take over its own country and, and be something better than what it is. But within that, there was also tremendous conflict there's also been a lot of crazy stuff um, that people are saying that, that just isn't true. For example, that this takeover occurred in 11 days. Like, that's not true. Okay, the Taliban really started its ascension in the 1990s. And yeah, they sort of completed their mission today of taking over Afghanistan, or at least this phase of their mission, because they're going to continue on. But it's not fair to say, oh, it just took them 11 days. Like that's, that's just not how it is. And then people are calling Afghanistan like the, the graveyard of empires. Uh, and they say Afghanistan's never been taken. That's not true either. Afghanistan has been taken many, many times. And what we know of Afghanistan, like what we call Afghanistan today, that's a fairly recent thing. And I'm going to talk about that too. What I want to get into isn't just like my opinion on, you know, current geopolitical affairs. I want to give everybody a perspective of the last couple thousand years in this area of the world that we call Afghanistan today. So originally I had recorded this podcast with a very good friend of mine, um, Major Will Mahone Sixth. This guy is a legend, right? Um, he was an honor grad at uh, the basic school. We lived together. We literally wrestled sharks together. Um, he's a tremendous Marine, and, uh, and he's also got a degree in Middle Eastern studies. Um, he's spent time in most of the countries in Asia. He's fluent in Arabic, Okay, really solid guy. And he put most of this research together. We recorded this podcast. We've been working on it for over a month. And the reason we were working on it for over a month is because we knew this was going to happen. Like, I'm not plugged in. Okay, I'm not. I spend most of my time hunting. But it was evident based on my experience and a little bit of historical reference that this was going to happen. So, anyways... I want to start off by just 
giving you a little brief orientation of where Afghanistan is. And, you know, it's like a common thing that people are like, oh, Americans, we don't know geology. Well, you know what? It's kind of hard to know all the places in the world. Okay, so Afghanistan is not in the Middle East, first of all. So when we're talking Middle East, we're sort of talking like Syria, Iraq, Iran, you know, the Saudi Peninsula, stuff like that. That would be considered the Middle East. When we're talking Afghanistan, I mean, that's Central Asia, okay? So if you get out a map, which I encourage you to do, because maps are always fun to look at and you always learn something neat, um, go find Afghanistan, okay? You can find Iran pretty easily, right? It's right above the Gulf of Oman. So, you know, you've got Iraq. And then if you keep going east, you've got Iran. You keep going east again, you've got Afghanistan. And it's this landlocked country. So it doesn't touch water anywhere. And that's a real problem. I'm going to talk about that too. But Afghanistan actually borders quite a few countries that you may not know. We know that they border Pakistan down to the southeast, okay? To the west, Iran has that border. And that's all kind of desert, arid country, not a lot of mountain ranges. Fairly easy to access Afghanistan through Iran. Lots of, lots of routes that they can get in and out. And then as you get up to the northwest, there's Turkmenistan. I'm not going to blame you if you've never even heard of Turkmenistan. A lot of these places don't even like come up in common American speech very often. They just don't. So we keep going around the clock, and we've got Uzbekistan, and then Tajikistan. And then there's this weird peninsula that goes out to the northeast, and that actually borders China. You know, you've got Kyrgyzstan, which is somewhat of an influence. It's above Tajikistan, but it actually doesn't border Afghanistan. So we come back past this weird little peninsula that borders China, that's kind of coming through the Hindu Kush mountain range, um, that edge of the the Himalayas, and, uh, and then you keep coming down south, and then you're going to get back into Pakistan again. Pakistan, it's worth mentioning is not a real country, okay? Stan means place in Persian, okay? So all these all these places, all these countries have stan at the end. They That means place, okay? P-A-K-I, that is an acronym, okay? So the P stands for Punjab. The A stands for Afghania. The K stands for Kashmir. And the I stands for something else like at Chuchistan or something like that. Um, but this was like a marketing campaign that came up in the 1930s. And Pakistan didn't even become a country until the 1940s. And it's really just this middle ground, this this consolidated group of people. And, you know, they're, they've got major beef with India. And the, the real formation of, of Pakistan was by, you know, India kicking Muslims out to the West and Pakistan saying, all right, if you're Hindu or anything else, you got to go to India. Um, and that's, that's kind of how that happened. So it's worth understanding that, that that's what's going on there. And again, Southern Afghanistan, that's where the Pashtun people come from. And Pashtuns, which, you know, it's, it's almost difficult to extract what is Pashtun and what is Taliban. We can think of Taliban as a political party, like, uh, you know, like pick any political party. You could pick a bad one, like the Nazis were a political party, or you can say, you know, Democrats or Republicans or whatever, independents. I don't care. It, it's an ideology. But what the Taliban have recently done is linked that ideology inextractably with Islam. And, and that's sort of their come together. They're like, they're called to arms. It's like, Hey, if you're Islam, we're Islam. Like we can come together. We can agree on this. And then it's a little bit easier to start bringing these tribes together, all these fractured tribes from the Afghan and Pakistan region. So the Pashtuns, they don't even agree that there is such a thing as Afghanistan. So they come from Helmand and they come from Kandahar. These are the southern districts of Afghanistan. And that goes into Pakistan. So this this line, this border that the British came up with in the early 1900s called the Durand Line, uh, 
yeah, that splits families, okay? And there's pastunes on both sides of that. So you remember back in the day, the news, when they still, you know, talked about Afghanistan a little bit, they said, you know, these uh, these Taliban fighters are, are taking arms back and forth over the, the Pakistan border. You know, they didn't think that that was a border. They thought that was all Pashtunistan, okay? If you get up north in Afghanistan, people consider themselves Tajiks, okay, if they're close to Tajikistan. Or if you get close to Uzbekistan, they call themselves Uzbeks, okay? Or Turks, if you get close to Turkmenistan. There are hundreds and hundreds of tribes. There's tribes within the Pashtun, okay? This is an extremely fractured place because of the landscape, because of finite resources. So that's a brief, brief overview of what and where Afghanistan is. Now I want to get into the actual history of it, okay? And you can get scary deep into Afghan history, but for for these purposes, like we're, we're just going to start with the Persians and we're going to kind of talk through some of the invasions that have occurred over time, all right? So early on, and I'm talking at this point like 500 B.C., that's when the Persians first started, you know, showing up and, and doing some hard knocks on the door. And that was like uh, Cyrus, um, Darius, and then Xerxes later on. Okay, this is around 5, 550, 516 um, before Christ. And Cyrus, he captured Kabul. Okay, it's, the, it's this cultural center. It's still the largest city in Afghanistan. And he held it for, for a long time. Okay, a lot of the, a lot of times when these invaders took Afghanistan or, or invaded Afghanistan, they would take the lowlands. They wouldn't mess with you know these small little villages in the mountains. Um, didn't care about that. They'd take the river valleys because that's where the food was. That's where water was. That's where they could transport troops, and then the bigger cities. Um, so the Persians they sort of inserted a couple different religions, one of them being Zoroastrianism, which is one of the oldest religions in the world, um, unless you start getting into paganism and, and its different breeds, and, uh, and Buddhism. Uh, 516, you know, that's when Darius shows up, and, uh, and he sort of brings Afghanistan into the empire. Uh, it continues to, uh, to stay under Persian rule for some time, and then along comes Alexander the Great out of Macedonia. Think about the Spartans, okay? This is what Alexander the Great was all about. So this was the first, like, consolidated military effort that was somewhat organized, and they had that phalanx, okay? So if you're picturing the movie 300, and you've got a bunch of dudes standing in a formation, and they've got a shield that is, like, you know four feet wide or something like that. So it can cover them. It can cover the guy next to them. And then there's a line behind them of spearmen so that anybody that gets close and pushes up against the shield wall, these spearmen can come in and, uh, and can stick them and can kill them. And they can keep moving forward through the battlefields like this. And they've got good command and control and organization. So Alexander the Great, he he did it, man. He, he conquered all kinds of stuff including Afghanistan. He actually pushed through the Hindu Kush. Um, and that's, that's that super gnarly mountain range that goes up to a little over 24,000 feet. Um, it's part of the Himalayas. Okay. And you think about Everest, it's 29,000 feet. So this is close to some of the tallest terrain in the world. He pushes through the Hindu Kush, goes into India, actually gets some elephants that he incorporates into his army, which is you know, pretty badass, if you ask me. And uh, and then he leaves a bunch of troops behind. And I think that this is an interesting thing to consider as well, because everybody that invaded Afghanistan for a long time, they did this. They would come in and they would fight and they would kill a bunch of the military-aged males. And then they would leave their troops behind in garrisons. And of course, whenever you do that, the troops are going to go out, they're going to find women, okay, and we're starting to insert genetics from another culture, a warring fighting culture, from warring and fighting men into this Afghan culture. Um, Alexander the Great actually left a troop there and had a second state that remained within Afghanistan for 300 years, 
Okay, so if you want to talk about okay, Afghanistan's never been conquered. This this state that Alexander the Great left behind long after his death, it existed longer than the United States has existed. So if you were to say that, you know, maybe Native Americans consolidate and they they overthrow um, everybody else in the United States, every other eth- ethnicity, and they they retake the United States then would you say that nobody has ever taken North America? Like, certainly not, okay? There was a long, long war between Native Americans and, you know, European settlers and, and, um, and settlers coming from Russia and from all kinds of places. And that's legitimately our longest war. We're talking about, you know, from basically Columbus or from uh, when the Vikings first showed up, to like 1925, intermittent fighting. Uh, so again, we talk about Afghanistan as America's longest war. Not exactly. Okay, we've been fighting other other battles for longer. Okay, so Alexander the Great, he comes in, crushes everybody. Um, and when I was in Afghanistan, there was still Alexandrian architecture in place that was probably from his troops, from his garrisons. And you can still find that stuff in, uh, in Helmand and probably in Kandahar province as well. Really amazing. And it, th- this architecture is in mud, okay? And think of it as adobe that's been baked hard, but you're starting to see these, these arches and these more ornate um, things. And a lot of them are just ruins. They're abandoned. But they're still there because Alexander had a sense of, of nostalgia that meant that he wanted things to last forever. And that's how things got built. 300 BC, that was all going on. Um, and then, man, a lot of people enter Afghanistan from this point forward. There's not really a time when people aren't coming in to either insert religious dominance, political dominance. They're using the Silk Road. This is a major corridor for people to move goods across to Asia. And that's going to continue for another few hundred years. If As we get into like the, the fourth century, that's when we're seeing Attila the Hun show up. Okay. And again, the first time the Huns invade, that's in the year uh, 320. Uh, they hold Afghanistan until the year 460. So I, I say they took it, you know, they did it. They didn't hold it forever, but they got it. So Afghanistan gets conquered again. A common theme is that Afghanistan is fractured into all these tribes, all these tribes, and they fight with each other constantly until they get invaded. And as soon as they get invaded, it's the easiest thing in the world for them to say, all right, boys, Time for us to get along. Let's go fight these dudes who are from out of town. And, you know, people can come in and they can take Afghanistan, but they can never hold it. They can never hold it in perpetuity. And the Afghans technically can't hold it either because as soon as that invading force leaves, Afghanistan dissolves into civil war until it gets fractured sufficiently to get to the point where tribes can just control say, a small valley or something like that, or, you know, a desert region. And this happens time and time again. So conquerors come in, they take the river valleys, they take the cities, and they leave the people in the mountains alone. And then when they leave, there's a bunch of infighting and civil war, unrest, things get fractured out again. And, you know, the Afghans just fight each other until another force invades. So that happens with the Huns in, uh, you know, in the 300s and the 400s. There's a lot of Buddhism coming into Afghanistan at this time. So throughout the the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries, huge amount of Buddhism. Um, in, in the 7th century, that's kind of when we first start to see a little bit of Islam trickling in. But it's, it's still primarily Buddhist is going to be the, the largest um, the largest religious influence. In the 10th century, 
there's more and more invasions. Like in, in the ninth century, there's Turks. In the 10th century, Hindus in, invade. Um, in the 11th century, then uh, Mahmud of Ghazni's armies come in and they, they defeat the Hindu. And that's in the Battle of Peshawar. That's you know technically in Pakistan, but it's through Khyber Pass, this, this pass that goes into Afghanistan from Pakistan. And this is the place where most of the invasions occur throughout time. That's where um, Genghis Khan and all of the other Khans to come after him are going to come through. That's where the Persians come through. Afghanistan is cake. It is cake to invade. It's easy to get into the country. But it's hard to get resupplied for goods because you're landlocked. And it's hard to hold because you can't unify these people who the only way to unify them is by your presence as an enemy. Think about that for a second. Okay. So around the 1200s, things start to get interesting again, because this is when Genghis Khan is going to come in. And this is the first time that we're going to see fighting from horses, from horseback. And, you know, the the Mongolians, they they shoot uh, a really stiff recurve bow, um, some of which had draw weights of over 200 pounds. They shot a thick, heavy arrow that had an iron tip on it. Um, and they could shoot these things close to a quarter mile, which is farther than I can shoot my 80-pound compound bow today. Like, absolutely incredible power that they're putting into these bows and they were born with it and they've put huge emphasis on kids learning how to do this from an early age they had to learn how to ride shoot speak the truth okay this started with the persians and the mongols carried that along and they knew that if they taught these boys these young men how to do this that they would grow into warriors that were extremely capable and the mongols you know, general tactic was to go out and instigate a fight and then get the enemy to counterattack and come back at them. And this is a common military strategy today. Like if you get attacked, you counterattack. And they would draw these forces out into places where a larger Mongol horde could surround them and shoot them with all of the arrows that they had to bear. And, uh, and with this technique, they were able to conquer huge amounts of ground. Um, another thing Genghis Khan was really good at was delegating. So rather than being an Alexander the Great type guy who has to be like the military commander, Genghis Khan is able to create a structural organization where you have small unit leadership, middle unit leadership, large unit leadership, and then he could delegate entire armies to go out and do his bidding in other places and just give them the intent. Another thing that Genghis Khan was good at is he wasn't specifically interested in ruling. He just wanted to take the ground. And he would do so as gently as needed to start with. And if that didn't work out, he got pretty violent. And we we run across terms like depopulation, okay? And if you read read something like that, that basically means, like, kill everybody. Genghis Khan was, was down with that, and, and it worked. So again, we're taking Mongols, the fiercest people that we've ever seen on the planet to date, and we're inserting that genetic back into Afga- Afghanistan. So all the time, we're taking religious scholars were taking warriors and we're sending them to this really tough place and we're sort of creating the most resilient people in the world that I'm aware of and they they really are they're a tough people um, they're industrious and and they show that to this day but what Afghanistan is is it's constantly becoming something new every time somebody else invades this country so, you know, the, the Mongols, they're coming in throughout the 1200s and, uh, and expanding the Mongol Empire, which ends up being about 12 million square miles, uh, about the size of the continent of Africa. And they do this all um, from the back of horses, you know, these little short step horses, and, uh, and they do it with a recurve bow and delegation, small unit leadership. 
This is stuff that the Marine Corps uses to this day, right? You know, warfare, you know, it changes a little bit, sometimes by leaps and bounds, but mostly there's a lot of similarities, which is why it's important for us to to study historic battles because places like Khyber Pass continue to be important because if you're going to move somewhere on the ground through a mountain range, the only way to do it is through a pass, okay? Um, and the only battle actually that Genghis Khan lost was was in one of those mountain passes. And, you know, he had this huge force and they got choked down into these, these narrow corridors and canyons. They were having to fire their arrows uphill and they just had a lot of dudes in the rocks, primarily using slings, okay, and rock slides and things like that. You know, we've got these cue ball sized rocks tumbling out of the mountains as these guys on horses, you know, without armor are trying to ride through there. And, uh, yeah, they gave Genghis Khan his, his only defeat in battle. Although I am going to also say, good job, Mongols. You also took Afghanistan. However, you could not hold it. As soon as the Mongols leave, surprise, surprise, civil war in Afghanistan. Man, it, it just continues on like this. And basically every century, um, there's just a revolving door of people coming in and, uh, and invading, holding it for a little while. Throughout the 1700s, there's, there's lots more battles. Uh, and then once we get into the 1800s, that's, that's kind of a different time. And let me back up just a, just a skosh, okay? The, the East India Trading Company, um, they start taking to the seas in the 1600s, I believe. Um, don't hate me if that's wrong, but I think it's in the 1600s that they start taking to the seas. And this throws Afghanistan into a period of, of general obsolescence, meaning that it's no longer important. So why would you go through all of these, these terrible mountain passes with all these warring tribes who bribe you to just to keep your life and to keep your goods, and, you know, cut into your profits. Why do all this if you can just take the stuff that you're buying from China and India and even Pakistan and just put it on a boat and go around? Like that's the better deal. Yeah, you might have to fight a pirate every once in a while, but it is nothing nearly so difficult as taking goods across Afghanistan on your back and on animals' backs, okay? The ships are so much more efficient. So what you'll see in the 1600s is people kind of forget about Afghanistan, and it they also become very poor during this time because there's no longer trade goods coming through. It's all going around on boats, and this hardens these people up. Remember, these, these people that we've created you know, with the genetics of all of the conquerors of history. Um, now we throw them into a type of poverty that, you know, they have not seen before since silk became important, um, you know, back in like the, the 1100s. So that's what's going on in the 1600s. Um, in, in the 1700s, there's a little bit more infighting. And then in the 1800s, uh, we sign an alliance with the United Kingdom. Okay, this is a guy, uh, Duran. The Durrani Empire um, is basically running Afghanistan. And uh, they sign an alliance with the United Kingdom. And that's when the British really start to kind of sink their, their uh, tea-stained teeth into Afghanistan. And we'll see them show up time and time again for the next... Uh, you know, 130 years or so. And now that Afghanistan is no longer considered important for a trade route, it's becoming important as a buffer zone. And we don't necessarily want um, Afghanistan to become part of Iran. We don't want it to become part of, you know, what is now known as Pakistan. And then we definitely don't want it to become a buffer um, of Russia. So, you know, the British are, are watching Afghanistan really closely, and they set up garrisons there multiple times, um, and they have to leave a few different times. Uh, 
there was one especially devastating period where about 16,000 um, British troops were garrisoned in, in Afghanistan. Uh, they brought, you know, the officers had brought their families with them um, and it became time to leave. Okay. The Afghans were no longer happy with them because the British had been moving goods between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And every time that they went through these passes, they had to pay a toll, you know, breed bribe. Okay. They had to bribe these hill people to, uh, to allow them to pass. And they decided, you know what, we're going to save some money and we're going to pay you less. Um, how does that sound? And the Afghan said, well, it doesn't sound good. What we're going to go ahead and do is kill all of you because uh, we feel slighted by this decrease um, in money available. So 16,000 um, Brits tried to leave Afghanistan. Uh, one man survives on one horse to, uh, to actually make it out of the pass. Um, both he and his horse are wounded many times. There's a famous painting of this, and uh, and both of them died uh, of their wounds. So you can imagine how horrible that must have been. I believe it was in December. Um, so now they're also fighting um, the cold. They're fighting the snow in these very tall passes, and they're trying to you know bring all their goods and their families and everything with them, um, and the weather. Uh, you know, the, the terrain of Afghanistan itself and its people kill 16,000 British. It's a bad deal, a very bad deal. But um, Russia is watching all this and they're trying to get the British to continue sort of grinding them, themselves against, you know, this diamond plate, which is Afghanistan. And, you know, they'll, they'll like, Russia will send an envoy out and they'll set up like a little garrison and, and the Brits are like, no, we can't let that happen. So they go back in and, you know, they, they do this a few times throughout the 1800s and, uh, you know, Russia is just saying, ha ha ha, you know, look at you guys. Uh, it was pretty smart political maneuvering. And, uh, you know, this time period is sort of known as the great game and, uh, the great game continues on basically until the end of uh, imperialism within the British Empire, if, if you could even, you know, call that an end. But I think that we effectively can at some point. All right, so let's, let's just go ahead and go straight to, to 1979. This is the beginning of the, the Soviet-Afghan War, okay? And in order to talk about that, we need to talk about how it started. Because prior to that, the Soviet Union wanted to make friends of its neighbors so that they could continue to add countries to the Soviet Union so that they could expand communism. And they wanted this strategic buffer because, you know, Afghanistan is difficult to, you know, to be in for, for a fighting force. So this basically gives you a neighbor that has some really mean guard dogs and some tall fences. So you don't really have to worry about, you know, uh, invaders coming this way. So it's, that's nice. That's a nice thing to have if, if you're the Soviet Union. So they give them a bunch of training. They give them a bunch of, um, a bunch of goods, some infrastructure, some buildings. They, 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 uh, they build some roads. Okay. And, uh, and, you know, the Germans are kind of doing the same thing. They build some roads. They, they do a, a bunch of nation-building stuff. And then eventually they say, all right, are you ready to be our friend now? And the Afghans say, no, we're not. So now Russia feels slighted, and they say, all right, well, we're, we're going we're gonna to take it. We're, we're going to make you be our friend. And this is kind of where the term scorched earth comes from. So they're coming in with these hind helicopters that can carry like eight troops, a bunch of firepower. The hind is a pretty impressive aircraft. Like I'm, I'm hesitant to call anything a tank that is not a tank, but if there were a tank that could fly, it would look a lot like the hind. Okay. Huge amount of, of firepower. It's tough. It can take a lot of hits and they start absolutely torching all these valleys and these villages and you come across this word that we talked about earlier called depopulation uh, russia is not being cool about this the u.s 
you know, we, we can call it humanitarian, but what we were looking at was the expansion of communism. And our approach to communism at this time is contain it, like keep it in the countries that it's in and don't let it out. So we're trying to keep Afghanistan from becoming communist. Okay, that's a scary thing to us because we can see, okay, Afghanistan's got this really close relationship with Pakistan, and then right next door, you've got all of these people in India of all, you got the caste system, okay? People are stratified, you know, by their political class, and uh, it this looks like a domino. Like, we could we could really start to see communism spreading rapidly at this point. We don't want it. We don't want it at all. So we got to stop it. So what do we do? We're going to empower the Afghan people to defeat the Russians, to defeat the Soviets. So we give them a bunch of goods. The CIA gives them money. We give them these really sweet rockets, these anti, these heat-seeking anti-aircraft disposable shoulder-fired rockets that you can give to a dude and send him up in the hills. He's almost indetectable. And then when a, when one of those hind helicopters comes past, he can pop up, shoot it. Okay, imagine like a Red Dawn type scenario. And, you know, we enable the Mujahideen, okay, these, these freedom fighters to defeat the Soviets. You want a funky political perspective on this? Watch Rambo 3, okay? Sylvester Stallone goes over there and, uh, you know, he, he helps the Afghans defeat the Soviets. Um, if this sounds familiar, it should, because this is exactly what happens to us next. Okay. Because now we've given them all of our goods, all of our training, and who's the next group that they're going to fight? Well, that's going to be us. And who's going to be kind of undercover supporting them to do so? Well, that's going to be the Russians, and that's going to be the Chinese. So the mortar shrapnel that is still in my back came from a Chinese mortar. The bullet holes that were in my body armor and my tank, those came from Russian arms. Imagine that. So in, in between this time, so after the Soviets leave, what happens? The same thing that always happens. Afghanistan goes through a little civil war. And what rises out of that is Taliban. And at this point, Taliban, they're sort of like a mafia. And, it, you know, they're just bullying people and, and extorting people. And they start to exploit the opium and the heroin trade. So they go into, you know, the area where they're strong, Pashtunistan, you know, that Kandahar, Helmand, southern area. And... They say, all right, you know, you're growing corn right now. You're not going to do that anymore. We're going to go ahead and make you grow poppy. And if you don't do that, we're going to kill you. How's that sound? And some people are like, no, I'm a corn farmer. They killed him. Their son says, all right, uh, poppy. I'm going to grow poppy. Poppy it is. So if you look at uh, some some images of, of poppies in Afghanistan, you'll see just gigantic fields of them gigantic fields and they have very very little rain in this area um, and they've got some rivers but they're bad at irrigation and a lot of their uh, their invaders starting with Genghis Khan you know they they destroyed their their irrigation because you know that limits their ability to grow food you can pacify the population like that and then the Afghans have long been using their irrigation systems as um as a military means of moving people and goods, uh, and then as ambush and attack points. Um, in Helmand province, there's this thing called the Karez system, K-A-R-E-Z, if you want to put some letters on it, Karez. And it's this ancient underground aqueduct that is sometimes very large, like a, like a 50-foot tunnel. And then throughout the top of it, because it's not used anymore, it's caved in. So imagine like a vein with a bunch of like needle marks in it, okay? And this caress system completely dictates how you can move around the country. It's huge. It is absolutely vast, and there's not water in it anymore. But it's still considered civilian infrastructure and not a legitimate military target. 
And they know this, so they use that to be able to move around and they can pop up out of these holes like a little whack-a-mole and shoot at you and drop back down and you can't do anything because our military cannot target civilian infrastructure. Sucks, it's how it is. So same thing with like pump houses and things like that. Like that's for irrigation, that's civilian infrastructure. So where did they hide all of their arms and IED making facilities? Pump houses, all right? These guys are smart and, you know, they don't have to play by our rules. We are the only ones that have to play by the rules. So it's a, it's a really tough situation. So the, uh, the Soviet-Afghan war, it lasts for 10 years. Um, and when they finally left, when they finally retreated out of Afghanistan, they left units behind that were out of communication and didn't know that the war was over. And this has happened before. This this occurred uh, with a with a Japanese dude famously in World War II. He considered fighting on one of the Pacific Islands. I think until, uh, you know, maybe in, into the 1970s, something wild like that. But anyways, tough tough situation. And you know, they'd come in with tanks. They'd come in with troops. They'd come in with helicopters. They'd absolutely done their worst done their worst to the Afghan people who resisted. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that the Soviet Union did not take Afghanistan during this 10-year time period. So you want to call that the graveyard of the empire? Yeah, maybe so. So 89, they leave. And, you know, a couple short years later, the Iron Curtain falls. And uh, along with it, so does the Soviet Union as we know it. And from those ashes come the modern Russian government, um, you know, that we see today that continues to do things like support the enemies of the United States, like Iran, for example, and Syria and uh, Afghanistan. So 1996, that's when we see the next civil war in Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001. And the forces of the Islamic State kind of retreat to northern Afghanistan as the, the Pashtun forces, um, you know, get stronger in the south. This is the rise of the Taliban as, as, as we knew them then. Um, what the Taliban is doing now is trying to be like the, you know, they're trying to have a face of like the kinder, more modern Taliban. Uh, but let me tell you, folks, they're not like... They're going to uh, enforce what's called Sharia law. It's a really bad thing for uh, for women and children. There's a really strong rape culture amongst the Taliban. I, I, I just, I got to tell you, these are not good people. So don't believe anything positive about them. So from that point forward, we we know the story a little bit better. Okay, we know that a bunch of Saudis trained in Afghanistan and they were radicalized into this group that we call Al-Qaeda. And we know that from that training, they were able to then, you know, commit acts of terrorism in the United States, like uh, what we saw on 9-11, acts that were atrocious and were unacceptable for the American people. So we went back to Afghanistan to make sure that that was not going to happen again. We stayed for 20 years. So during that time, there's over 2,000 American troops who died fighting in Afghanistan and over 20,000 who were physically wounded and well over 100,000 who now live and suffer with post-traumatic stress. Uh, We spent close to a trillion dollars, allegedly. Uh, The way I saw money moving around, I would find it impossible, impossible to account for the spending. That sounds like a pretty neat number to me. Who knows? You know, a, a, a trillion is is so arbitrary. That, that's a number that we can't even really understand. Um, so let's put it in a term of, of time. You know, if you have uh, a million seconds, that's like 11 days. Okay. A billion seconds is something like 22 years. And a trillion seconds is something like 33,000 years. I might not have all that correct, but it's close. 
and it gives you the idea. So if you're to print a dollar bill every second, like that's a pretty fast printer. Yeah. So a dollar bill every second, you know, in, uh, in, in over 30,000 years, we'll have enough money to pay for the last 20 years of Afghanistan, supposedly. So what happens next? You can crystal ball this all you want. But what's happened every time before, every time before, an invader has come in, tried to take Afghanistan, maybe successfully, maybe they held it for a few hundred years, maybe it was for 20 years, maybe it was for 10 years or less. When they leave, there's a civil war every time. So the Taliban that is trying to set themselves up as a legitimate government right now, man, it doesn't look good for them being able to hold on to that. There's probably going to be some different ideas about how religious they should be or about whether they should continue to expand or whether they should continue trying to take the fight to the Americans or to the British or to any of the allied forces that fought in Afghanistan, like the Australians. Okay, there's countries from all over the world that did their best to remove the threat of terrorism from Afghanistan and to give these people a chance at the way we live, a chance at democracy, um, you know, a, a chance at, at freedom, at, at free enterprise, like to be able to grow a crop you could eat. And that chance is no longer there for them. Okay, it's gone. And they're going to fight about that. So what we can expect from them coming soon is a civil war, because that's what they do every time. The reason I wanted to go through this history is because I want everybody to understand that everything that has happened in Afghanistan in the last 20 years, and the 10 years before that, and the 100 years before that, it's, it's happened a bunch of times. A bunch of times. We come in with a similar fashion for slightly different reasons. We stay for a little while, we leave, they fight amongst each other, and then somebody else comes in because it looks like they're weak, maybe, or for their for some other reason. It's easy to get in there. We can take the cities, we can't take the hills, and uh, then eventually we leave. And then Afghanistan fights with itself again. It, it's, it's an incredibly complicated situation, and I don't envy anybody anybody that has to make decisions about how this goes. And well, I have criticisms, you know, I, I'm just glad. I'm so glad that I'm not the one that has to make these decisions because there's not a good way. I promise you that there's not a good way. Uh, the last thing I'll tell you is that there are better ways than, uh, than what we just did. And I don't know if, uh, if, if another country will ever trust us again. But what I do know is that the military, the United States military, is still the best military in the world. And if there is a reason to trust us, it is because the men and women of the U.S. military will continue to do their best and not only lay their lives on the line for the, the people of the United States, they're going to do it for anybody. They're going to do it for anybody that we, the people, determine need our help. So that's it. That is, you know, a 15-minute uh, long, you know, 1,300-year history of, uh, of Afghanistan. And I hope that it helps you understand. I wish I could tell you that uh that it wasn't all for nothing um but the reality is all that all that pain and and blood and and suffering uh you know it's coming back it's coming back and and guys are having to deal with it again that uh that have maybe you know put that stuff behind them for a while it's tough times you know you know somebody that that was over there check on them I'll give them a call. Uh, I don't know that there's anything you can really offer them, um, 
but it's nice to have a friend. It's nice to have somebody that calls and, and uh, just just checks on you. I encourage you to do that. And I want to thank you for listening. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my wood pile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing, and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal, and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.